Be confident. Be bold. Be authentic. But don't forget to take action. This is Ordinary to Badass, where our stories empower women to step into the spotlight of their own lives and pursue what they're truly passionate about. It's time to step into the arena and become more than just extraordinary. It's time to become a badass with your host, Marie Sonneman. Welcome to Ordinary to Badass, episode number 66. In this episode, we talk with Tiffany Bat. Tiffany and I talk about taking on projects, overworking, and why the prequel is never as good as the sequel. Stay tuned, because I know that you will not want to miss this episode. But before we get there, if you love this podcast, please, 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 Take the time to go to iTunes and leave a five-star review saying what you thought of this episode. It would mean so much to me. Then, of course, screenshot it and send it to me on Instagram at Ordinary to Badass. Now to the episode. Welcome to Ordinary to Badass. Whether you're ordinary or badass, I'm glad you're here. Today's guest is Tiffany Babb. Tiffany, thank you so much for being here. Excited to have you on the show. Thanks for having me here. So first off, before we go any further, I've got to ask you, do you consider yourself ordinary or badass? Pretty much almost absolutely a badass. <laughs> I love it. When do you feel the most badass? When do I? I guess when I am looking back at what I have been doing, or I think when I'm looking forward, I'm often like, a little lost and it's like well what's gonna happen next year who knows you feel like you're kind of winging it but when you're looking back and you kind of look at wow I've done this in the three last three months five years ago me would have only dreamed about it um that's when I feel the most badass so when you're looking forward how do you not let fear stop you from doing badass things I think Fear is a tricky thing, right? Because it shows up in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's, oh my gosh, I can't do it. Sometimes it's protecting you, right? (laughs) Sometimes it's like, oh, maybe I shouldn't take on these extra three, four projects because, you know, I'm only a human being. So I think it's important to listen to your instincts, um, but it's also important to push yourself. And like the only way to figure out what the balance is, is to try and fail. And so you, you push yourself and you push yourself and sometimes it doesn't work, but that's not the end of the world. You know, as long as you're alive, you still have other things you can do. Right. So I think just never being afraid to take that next step. Is there anything that you say to yourself or tell yourself when you do feel fear or you're worried about taking the next step? Gosh. Um, I think I don't have, like, personally, my personality, I I do get afraid of things, but once I have my mind set on something, it's pretty much set. So I feel like that's not something I struggle with as much, unless it is just 
generalize like every time you start something you're like well what am I doing and then I think at that point you just have to remind yourself that you've done it before and you felt just as hopeless before you know two weeks ago when you were doing pretty much the same thing and you managed it and so you'll probably manage it this time yeah so I think of you like like a powerhouse like you just (laughs) you kick butt and you get a massive amount of stuff done do you think that it gets easier to do the hard things Um, the more that you challenge yourself to do hard things? I think it is kind of a habit, right? Like any habit you, anything you do a hundred times, it's easier. Like um, I, I, I write poetry. And so every year I probably submit like a hundred poetry packets for publication. And it's a lot of rejections, but like once you, you know, hit your like 80th rejection or something of the year, it doesn't suck anymore because it's just part of the everyday life. So I think that's a big way of overcoming that fear of failure is just building it into your system and respecting it as part of the process instead of being so afraid of it. I love that. I've never heard anybody say to respect fear. So I think that's, <laughs> that's powerful. <laughs> so Tiffany, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so so I do write poetry, as I just said, but mainly I'm a cultural critic. So I write um, essays and reviews, mostly about comics, but I'm starting to write about television and film and books as well. Um, I think for me, the big picture aspect of it is that I'm interested in engaging with the world on a deeper level. So it's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have to be a book. Sometimes it's just um, thinking deeper about the moment and drawing connections between things that seem disparate. That's, that's the kind of stuff that really excites me. So can you give us an example of something that you draw a connection between? Yeah. Um, so my, I mean, all time obsession, I love Shakespeare, but something that I've been thinking a lot about is, um, is Shakespeare an adaptation because the Shakespeare that we're reading now is not the Shakespeare of this time because our language has changed, our culture's changed. So what we're reading is pretty much a completely new text for us. So I've been thinking a lot about like modern adaptations of old things. Like we have a new Emma film that came out after the Jane Austen stuff, but also like we had Clueless, which was also a modernization of Emma and just kind of drawing our attention because I feel like we often let old things seem kind of rigid and can't be changed, but everything's changing already. So like we can take, um, you know, a Superman comic and tell a Shakespeare story with it. I mean, that's what Lion King is, right? Explain that. Lion Um, King is Hamlet. So uh it's the story of Hamlet, you know, ghost father is murdered, ghost of the father comes back, talks to Hamlet, Hamlet needs to like usurp the throne. Obviously Lion King does not have the same tragic ending as Hamlet does, but it's the same basis. And that's like where they got the plot. Um, And there's just, there's so much that I feel like we leave on the sidelines when we could be not necessarily like revamping it with lions, but like we can look at things and realize that our current perspective is bringing something new to this really old thing that we're reading. And that's valuable. How did you get into this or get started becoming a critic or a cultural critic? Gosh, um, so I, I think I was always kind of obsessed with cultural criticism as a kid, but I didn't think it was something you could do. 
it sounded like something that, you know, people used to do and like nobody really respects anymore, which some people would argue is still true. But I think around in college, I, you know, it's, it's very similar to like academic writing, but except for the fact that you're writing to a, a regular audience as opposed to a lot of scholars. Um, so I was writing a lot of papers in college and I was like, hey, I can start doing this outside of school and not necessarily only for my professors to read. And so I went and got my MA in American studies and that's when I moved to New York. And then afterwards I got my MFA, um, which kind of helped me with the creative writing portion and just, it is something that I'm interested in, even though it's kind of not my priority because like, I think for a cultural critic, everything is useful. Like you see these amazing um, pieces written about Bloomsbury has this series called Object Lessons and there are these little books and there's this entire like essay about dust. And it's like, it's a full book about dust and it's from all these different like metaphysical perspectives, philosophical. And if I were learning about dust, like, well, if normal person's learning about dust and they're not a dust scientist, they're like, well, this is pretty boring and useless. But for a cultural critic, if you can take that idea, if you can take that that framework, that slice of knowledge and make it about the world. I mean, that's kind of what we do, right? So how do you analyze media critically and why? How do I do it? I think it's the first thing that one has to do is be very aware. Like you want to, I take that back. C.S. Lewis always says to surrender, right? He's He has this great book called An Experiment in Criticism where he says like, you cannot judge a work of art until you experience it. And you can only experience it if you're completely open-minded. You can't come in thinking, oh, this is going to be terrible. Can't wait to tear it apart because you might miss it because that attitude keeps you from engaging. So I think the first thing is to experience the work of art. And what a lot of critics do is they go in, they have their first watch of the movie or whatever, and you know they're moved to tears, they weep, and then they come back and then they take out their pen and they start writing during the second one. And I think everyone does it differently because everyone pays attention to different things. And like, even I do it differently depending on what the piece is. Certain pieces, I'm looking at it through um, a queer lens. So I'm thinking about how does this fit into the history of queer popular culture? Um, And some of them I'm like, well, I'm really interested in the use of lighting in this one scene. Like one of those things is very technical. One of them is historical and cultural. Um, So for me, it's about looking at the work of art and then seeing what comes to mind like what interests me the most and if it's not boring if it's not the same thing that interests everyone the most then just digging deeper so what do you do to stay curious stay curious gosh i constantly consume i'm <laughs> like i've watched like probably over 100 movies this year i read novels i read comics i read poetry i read essays um I think from it's different for different people because I meet writers who, when they're writing, they can't consume new things because then they'll get distracted. But for me, I feel like a lot of my energy comes from reading stuff, whether it's really, really amazing or really, really terrible. It's just that, I mean, for me, I guess that's a big part of the process of how I connect things because I see so many things and you can start to see patterns. Yeah, it always blows me away how you connect different things. Um, and I love reading your newsletter 
because it just, it's things that I don't hear. Like in my daily life, I don't hear other people connecting those things or I never would have thought about it. So I just think it's amazing to hear a different and fresh perspective. Thank you. It's uh, My newsletter is one of my favorite pieces of writing because every month I can decide what I want to write about and it could really be anything. I think one month I wrote about this website called Window Swap, which is just videos of windows from around the world. And that's not necessarily, you know, the hot movie that everyone's talking about this week, but it interested me. And I was like, hey, I could draw this connection between this idea of sitting still and looking out of some, someone else's window for 10 minutes and where we are right now in the world. Um, and I think that's kind of the fun is just, as I was talking about earlier, like art changes over time, but art, that means that like our relationship with the art changes over time. Like when you're listening to a song that used to be your song with your romantic partner, but now you've broken up and it's been five years, it's a different <laughs> song. Like that song brings different memories than when it was when you were in that relationship. So if you can kind of tap into that moment or tap into like what you're feeling when you're interacting with that work right now and explain why, I think that's really, really interesting to other people. Yeah. Um, and I was going to say when you were saying that, I was like, do you think art changes over time or do you think we just change over time? I think that's a complicated question. Um, <laughs> I think it's both, right? Because art doesn't exist in a vacuum. Art, do, to me at least, a lot of people will disagree with me, but to me, art, like meaning is placed upon the art by the person interacting with art. So this sculpture is one thing. And then when I see the sculpture or when someone else sees the sculpture, it's another thing. And that changes if I know the history of the sculpture, if I'm a scholar of this artist, that changes things. But that doesn't mean someone off the street who's never seen this sculpture or this artist in their life can't look at it and have an experience that's totally valid and makes sense. Um, it's, to me, it's all about interpretation. But then again, that's my business, right? My business is interpretation. And so okay. I'm like, that's the most important part. So if there's a woman out there that wants to become a cultural critic, but doesn't really know where to start, what would you recommend? I think the big thing, and this is useful advice for all writers, is just read a lot, not just of, you definitely want to keep up to date with other cultural critics and what they're doing, because art is a conversation. And if you sound like a writer from the 1920s, because that's all you read, like people are going to think you're outdated and it's because you are. Um, but the other thing is just, you also have to read widely because if you only read cultural criticism, you're just going to sound like everyone else. Like you should also be, like for me, I read, I read art magazines, but I also, I read comics we've talked about. I, like I watch kids movies. I watch horror movies. I watch art house movies. Um, I think like from, like it's interesting to see other perspectives. I really, one of my new hobbies is reading career books for careers that are not mine. <laughs> so I'm reading this book called Navigating the Art World for like early career artists. And like, I, I mean, I do art, but I'm not like, that's not my career. I'm not gonna go and become like a famous gallery painter. Um, but reading about how these artists who want to do that build their careers is interesting to me because there are parallels. Like there are a lot of things that are the same everywhere. You know, everyone's talking about, you need to have a social media presence, how to build your mailing list or whatever. But then there are things that are so far away, like 
this is how you should light your canvas for a good photograph, which is still interesting because now I know how artists to photograph their art for magazines do it. And that makes me a better cultural critic because I understand the craft more. Right, right. So I think that sounding like everyone else is something that people struggle with. Like it's so easy to try to blend in or try to fit in with what everybody else is doing. So then you don't make a mistake. Um, is the way you combat that kind of just by being interested in so many different things and keeping yourself well-rounded or how do you combat that? I think that's the way that I combat it. I don't know if that's the right fix for everyone because everyone else has a different experience. I think one big, I think that is something that a lot of early career writers and writers and artists um, deal with because you're like, when you've only written two things, like your voice isn't there yet. Like it's great to those two pieces could be great, but like a voice kind of emerges after a long body of work. So like once you've written 50 things or a hundred things, then you can start to understand it. But I feel like that's, it's something that happens in learning any skill, but we hold it at such like a higher standard when it comes to the arts. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, you don't have your voice. And it's like, well, yeah, I've only been doing this for for a month. <laughs> like who has a voice after a month? <laughs> um, it's something that develops like like any skill. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, because you have to grow confidence in it. You know, you have to kind of <laughs> get comfortable in your own skin and grow confidence. So yeah, great point. Um, let's pivot and talk a little bit about your wins. Um, can you share with us something that you're most proud of accomplishing? Gosh, um, most proud of accomplishing. I think this is going to sound like, I don't know if this is the answer that is most useful, but I think most proud of accomplishing for me is just doing what I do on an everyday basis. Whether like, that doesn't mean I'm like, I'm not, I don't write full time. I'm a freelance writer and I write part time, but I churn out like a good deal of work. Um, every year, especially like now, um, over the last couple years. And the fact that I can look back at the last month of my writing and say, wow, that is a lot of stuff. And a lot of it is good, or a lot of it is, you know, at least decent, right? (laughs) Um, That's something that I wouldn't have been able to do five years ago, because so much of it comes from discipline and habits. And like that stuff grows over years. Like, it's hard to sit down and write several hours a day every day when you're just starting out. But when you start out and you do it for 15 minutes a day, then like six years later, like you're able to do it. Yeah. And I, I think that people like we all tend to look at other people who are accomplished and be like, Oh, that's just them. They just have it. They just have a knack, you know, like it just comes easy for them. But I, I think that you're right. I think that it's kind of over time you learn how to, either dedicate more time to it or it's not such a chore like it just becomes more natural to you yes and also like I guess for me with the whole like they have a knack idea is like some people definitely do have a knack like some people are naturally gifted beautiful writers I think I started out as a decent writer and I have gotten to be good over time I don't think I'm a like I'm not a genius I'm not um I don't know if I have I don't think I have a gift I think it's just that I just sit down and I put the hours in and some people can succeed without that, but I can only work with the skills that I have. And these are the skills that I have. Right. Um, 
so what did it take to get to that point, to get to the point where you're able to put in that much work? I think one part is just recognizing that that's like, you have to want it, of course, but it's also recognizing that 90 that the work is boring. (laughs) Like, I love my work. I love writing. I love cultural criticism. I love analysis. But writing can be miserable. Sometimes you sit down, every piece that you start is from a blank page. And just because you've done it a hundred times doesn't mean you know how to do it this time, because this is a completely new thing, right? (laughs) So you're starting from square one. And once you've done it for a long time, you just trust the process more. I think at the beginning, there's so much more doubt because you haven't done it a hundred times. But as time goes on, like the doubt is still there and it's still miserable. Um, But you know that like, if you sit down and put the 10 hours in, most likely at the end of the 10 hours, sometimes it doesn't happen though. Cause like I recently, just a couple months ago, and this was mortifying to me, is I got the yips. Like I was like, I don't know how to write this piece. This is terrible. And I think this has only happened to me once other, like one other time in my life when I was in grad school and I turned in this God awful paper. Um, But it just, I was putting maybe triple the amount of time that I'd normally put into a project and it was bad. And I sent it to the editor and he was like, this needs a lot of work before we can publish this. And I was like, I know, I know. And it was so mortifying. But to be honest, once that was over and once I like set a new deadline and figured out how I was going to revise that, it was so freeing because I'm like, that's the worst thing that can happen. And it sucked. But you know what? It was over. Like I, it hasn't destroyed that relationship with the editor, I don't think. And sometimes that happens. Like writing is a creative, it's a creative like skill, even though I'm very of the aspect of it's also craft and it's also kind of just something that you sit down and you work at but sometimes it doesn't come like right and now that I've hit that point I'm like well there's that um but but I think it is just like like thinking about let's say I've been writing six about six years that's happened twice once in school and once now and so it's not always going to come right it's just going to come sometimes hopefully as rarely as possible And a big part of that is just treating it as if it's any other job. And I know writers talk about this all the time, but I think it's very distracting in the arts. And I know this is happening in the visual arts too, because of that book I'm reading, but like people think that because it's a creative, because it's a creative like field, there's like talent and there's no talent and that's it. But there's this great quote that I read from also a book about art school years ago, I was saying that the writer was graduation day um, from writing school and the, the president of the school had come out and he told all the students that only 2% of them would have careers as artists. And it wasn't the most talented 2%. It was the 2% that would keep knocking on doors even after everyone had quit. And I think that story stuck with me a lot because I am, I'm not the most talented 2%. Like I, Maybe someday I will be. I don't know if I will. I have no idea how I will develop as a writer over time. But if I can be that 2% who keeps knocking on doors, who, you know, has the longest spreadsheet of submissions, who keeps pitching, who keeps writing and publishing, like that's what careers are built on, not not pure talent. Yeah. And I think that that can be spread through anything. 
You know, yes. like that doesn't have to just be art or for creatives. It can be whatever line of work you're doing or whatever thing that you're like passionate about. You can just keep doing it. And it's the ones that keep like persisting uh, and learning from it and not beating themselves up. I think they're the most successful at um, not the ones that, you know, like you said, are the most talented. Yeah. I mean, life is made up. I think, I don't know if it's our culture or if it's just humanity, but we like to think of big events. It's like wedding day or graduation day or the day I won this award. But that's not what life is. Life is made up of lots of just single days of like regular everyday life. That's the majority of your life. And because that's the majority of your life, that's the majority of what's going to impact your life. Like having the one really great career day is awesome. And maybe for a small percentage of people, it'll kick off the rest of their career. But even if it does, like they still have to do the everyday work after that to maintain that. So recognizing that like I can't control whether or not like tomorrow I get published, like, I don't know, in the New York Times, but I can control how many hours I sit down and work on. I can control improving my craft. I can control um, making sure that I'm reading enough good writing. And so I know that I'm staying on like, you know, on topic for like, so I'm reading the hot book or whatever. So I know what everyone else is talking about. Even if I'm not going to write about the hot book, it's still important to stay current. Um, when you're talking about culture, I think focusing on what we can control, which is so much of our careers, actually, just in general, um, like we make choices every day. And even though we don't see the results immediately, like we'll see the results three years from now or five years from now or 10 years from now. Yeah. And I like how you talked about like the stuff that's in the everyday. I know when I ran my first marathon, um, training for it, everybody always kept saying like, oh, like the beauty's in the training, not the actual day of the marathon. And I didn't really believe that until it had happened to me. But it's really, it really is. It's all those hard days that you put in leading up to it. Um, and it makes that final event, maybe not what you put it as in your head, because you've already trained, you've already told yourself it's going to happen. You're going to make it, whatever that thing you're, like that end goal that you're going for. But actually, like the greatness is in the hard days of work where you want to give up or cry or stop, but you keep going. I don't know. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, those training days are the, like, that's what gets you to the marathon. Like the marathon isn't a thing in itself. Those training days are what made you able to complete the marathon. And those training days are what affect your health. And right. like, like running one marathon, let's say someone's very unfit, but they still make the marathon, which could happen, I'm yeah. sure. But like that person isn't healthier than the person who trained every day for months and months and months. Right, right. Yeah. I, yeah, I, so I love that analogy of like, like the beauty in the daily or in your daily life. So let's pivot a little bit and life isn't all gumdrops and lollipops. Everything's not perfect. So tell us a little bit about your struggles and maybe a time where you gave up and now you wish you wouldn't have. Gosh, struggles are, you know, every day. They're, they're every day right now. We all have <laughs> 2020. Of, right, 2020. Just the world in general. But personally, I think things that I wish I didn't quit. I think a lot of things. Like there's a lot of little things along the way that it's like, I wish I stuck with that a month longer or I wish I had um, decided. Like, I, th I guess mine is like, 
I can get very, like, I'm very bold in my uh, day-to-day life or my, um, in my writing and in my way of speaking in my mannerisms, but like, sometimes I can just be so afraid to shake things up and like, go and do something different. Um, like I love, like I love talking to strangers, but sometimes I'm like, I don't know if I want to go to that, like that event, because I don't know if I'll be able to like jive with other people. And well, now there are no events and now there's no traveling. And I think a little bit, I've been thinking a little bit recently about just, well, it would have been cool to like push myself a little more and have different experiences. I think like for me, I get set in my ways, even though I consume a lot of different things. Like I don't go to that new restaurant on the corner because I know I like this restaurant already, right? So so that's probably um, on the regret side. As for failures and just things not going well, I did earlier talk about getting the yips for writing and that has really changed my mindset for the better, which is exciting, even though it felt god-awful when I was going through it, Um, which I think has also helped me think about failure and like, and that's like not super public failure, but it's like, you know, the editor was someone I respected. So it was like not private failure either. Right. But I think it's one of those things where the worst thing has happened and you're like, okay, so that thing that I was scared about for so long happened, it passed, and now I'm still here and everything's still okay. And so hopefully that'll make me braver. Don't know if it actually will. <laughs> we'll see how, how that happens. Um, but other than that, I think like it's strange because for me, writing and my work isn't like when I'm going through bad times personally, somehow I write more. <laughs> It's like I'm generally anxious, but then when like everything's going to hell, I'm like, well, everything's going to hell. At least I don't have to stress out about things going to hell anymore. <laughs> so somehow I I feel like I my output is so much higher when things are going poorly. Um, but but yeah, um, it, it it is a strange it is a strange thing because I can think of like a ton of like hard times I've gone through, but when it comes to my work like it was never something that was too difficult to overcome because a rejection is just a rejection. And that's, I think that's something you really have to get into your head when you're writing because you're gonna get more rejections and acceptances by like tenfold. So once you shrug that off, like there are no big failures because they don't want it. Okay, well, I work on something else. They don't want that, well, I'll work on something else and you just keep going. And that's just part of the process. All, I mean, all writers go through that. Even super, like I was um, listening to a, like a class seminar thing from the poet Kaveh Akbar, who is one of the most talented poets in the world, in my opinion, right now. And, you know, his stuff's in the New Yorker, it's in Poetry Magazine. He's really, really big and beautiful poet. Um, But he was like talking about like, oh yeah, I tried really hard to place this poem and nobody wanted it. And I was like, what? But, but you're Kaveh Akbar, like you're a very famous poet, um, but he still has to deal with rejections. That's just, that's how this industry works. That's, and that's good, life. To, right? Because like, no matter who you are, not all of your work is going to be your best work. 
yeah and not everybody's gonna love also true like (laughs) just because it's your best work doesn't mean it's right for this magazine or it's right for this newspaper yeah that reminds me I can't even think of the name I think it was a Elizabeth Gilbert book of how she had submitted one piece um to she submitted one piece of writing and they said nope that's not for us and then she later submitted it again and they were like we love it you know and it was a couple years later and they thought it was like the best thing ever but it was a different time and maybe the first time it just kind of planted a seed and the second time when she submitted it although they didn't remember it was her or that she had submitted it to them before like they completely like loved the idea so I thought that was that's amazing yeah and it's perfect encapsulation of what I was saying earlier about art changes meaning over time like it sounds kind of silly to say this but I mean I'm guessing the piece is amazing right but like the piece could have been more powerful two years later right depending on the state of the world depending on what was happening in that editor's life yeah Um, the example I always like to use is um there was that one year where there were two volcano movies coming out in the same year this I mean this stuff happens all the time it'll be like wow, two movie, movies about Thomas Jefferson from different studios happen to come out in 2009 or whatever. Right. Um, and even though the second one might be better, people always like the first one more because the second one's filled with stuff that they did, had just seen earlier this year, right? And it, so it's not necessarily, like art is such a conversation and it's not necessarily who has the best thing. It's what hits the moment, what hits the people at the right time, what's the right word. And so much of that is out of the artist's control. Like the one thing that you can do is make sure your work is the best to your abilities and like hope, <laughs> like once it's out there, it has a life of its own. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's funny, this is a little bit different, but you talked about like the one that comes out first is always the most popular. But I also think that about like sequels, usually people like the first one better than they like the sequel. And I don't know if that's because it, com- it came out first or how do you well, top I- that? That's funny because I write a lot about seriality. Seriality is one of my best, like one of my great loves in life. And I'm fascinated by television and monthly comics do something similar. And a lot of that, in my opinion, comes from people have expectations for the second book. The first book, you can be taken by surprise and you're like, oh, this is so good. I can't believe this is so good. But like for the second one, you've been waiting for two years. And so every day your little expectations get higher and higher. And it's really hard for any book to like meet up to those expectations and like it's complicated because you have to continue the story right you're not creating a new world and minds have decided well I think this character is really like this or I think this character is like this and that might not match to what the author thinks the character is right yeah I mean I yeah I think it's so interesting how sequels are just they just seem hard <laughs> yeah absolutely So let's talk a little bit about your mindset. Um, Tell us about your mindset and how it has led to your badassery. I think my mindset, we talked a little about determination earlier, and that's the big one, is just for me knowing, or not knowing that I will, but knowing that if I will get up one, one extra day, like the day after I thought I would give up, I get up the extra day and I do it. That So my mother, um, years ago, she was a door-to-door encyclopedia salesperson back, you know, back when we bought encyclopedias. And 
the way she became successful is she knocked on two more doors than everyone else. Like that's just how it goes, right? Like you, you change the odds by either spending more time or submitting more or writing more. You can only affect the odds that way. You like, you can't affect the other stuff. So for me, knowing that, knowing that it's a marathon, knowing that like not everything has to be done now. This is all actually something else that my mother taught me, which was I was panicking a couple of years ago about this book that I was working on, which I ended up like discarding as a project, but someone had read it and given me the notes. They were like, well, you haven't written about gender and your dad dying and you haven't written about being a mixed person, um, like a, a person of color and you haven't written about being bisexual. And I was like, oh, wow, like I've left all this stuff out. And like, this is supposed to be like a really, this is supposed to be a book, right? Where's all this stuff? And my mother like turned to me and she was like, you're going to write other books. Like, it's ridiculous (laughs) to think that like all of your personality, all of your things can fit into a book about, like it was a book of weather poetry. Like these were poems about the rain and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I laughed because it's true. Like, I think we often think of like, well, there's that artist's masterpiece. And it's like, yeah, sure, that could be the artist's best book. But the artist was a person who had a full life outside of it. And that might not have been their favorite thing that they did. Like there's, maybe they enjoyed painting landscapes in their free time. Like no work of art can encapsulate everything. And so that's given me a lot less pressure on each thing I do, because it's, Like once you have a decent body of workout, you're not thinking, well, everyone's going to judge me because I'm, because of this one piece anymore. Right. Right. And that just, it makes a really big shift. Um, That shift in mindset makes it easier to do the work every day. And just realizing that, well, today I'm putting my one block onto the wall and tomorrow I'll put my next block instead of thinking, oh my God, I have to build a whole wall every day Um, because nobody like nobody can build a whole career in one day, right? That's not how lives are made. Like we do one thing at a time. (laughs) Unfortunately, people can't do, you know, eight things at a time. I wish I could, that, that would be very helpful, but (laughs) you, you have to concentrate on the thing in front of you. So it sounds like your mom was kind of a big influence on you. And like, she was a strong woman. What's something that you've learned from her? Gosh, a lot. Um, Those two are big ones. I think she, so she was the, um, like my, my dad was a stay-at-home dad and she worked um, and she runs her own business and stuff. And I think I do have a bit of an overworking problem that I'm trying to manage now. And I'm being a lot more healthy about it now after last year I had a bunch of health issues that came along with, um, oh, that's actually a really good um, moment of tribulations, I guess. Yeah. Because about this time last year, my health started tanking really bad and I had really bad pain, like serious chronic pain. And to the point, and I was losing energy, like to the point where there's this one day I went to Costco and I was walking around and I had to sit down on the floor and ask my mom to pick me up, like drive to Costco and pick me up in her car because Mm -hmm. I couldn't walk anymore. Mm -hmm. And it was overwork. Like I had I felt fine. I was like, I feel fine. It's fine. Like I'm getting eight hours of sleep a night, but like every waking moment was work. And that's really unhealthy. Right. I think, um, 
I think growing up with my mom like really pushed me to do the extra mile. But at some point, you have to set a boundary and like have and burnout, like realizing that I could not work pretty much for several months was like a huge disaster emotionally. Cause I was yeah. like, I can't, like, there were days when the only waking hour or two that I had would be to eat a meal and then go back to sleep. Like, that's how bad it got. And it's just, it's not efficient. <laughs> like, we're just doing numbers, like, beyond mental health and like um, quality of life. Like, that it's not worth it. Like if you can take some time off every day and take your weekends off, because back then I wasn't taking weekends off, um, you can get more done. That's just, I mean, it's what I was talking about, the one brick a day, like laying 10 bricks a day could be cool. But if for the next 10 days, if for the next 12 days, you can't lay any bricks, like what, what are you doing? You're just being inefficient with your time. So I think my mom taught me to work hard, although now I'm making it sound like it was a disaster, but it is, <laughs> it is a plus like it is a plus to a point and then it's a problem. So I think the lesson here is to push yourself, but also realize that you're a human being that exists outside of your work, which is something that I didn't know for a long time. I think for me, because my work is so important to me, um, I think it was really hard for me to understand that I had value as a human being outside of writing. How do you stop yourself from pushing yourself too hard now? I have systems. I do. And sometimes they fail because sometimes I don't adhere to them. Um, So like I take weekends off now. Sometimes I cheat, but I do try to take the entire weekend off. Um, And I do creative stuff on the weekends. Like I I do a weekly diary comic and stuff, but nothing with the deadline, (laughs) no critical writing, no analysis, nothing like that. Um, I take evenings off now. Like once I clock out, I mostly clock out. Sometimes I cheat and that's not good, but that's pretty much a rule. I also have, and I think this um, is a really good one because this has really helped me. I have a set of questions that I ask myself before I take on any project. And that has saved my butt so many times. Like the questions are, the first one is, is this project taking me closer to where I want to be in five years? The second one is how much, like, what am I getting out of this project? Like, am I getting money? Am I getting like a cool new connection? Am I doing a favor for someone who's done me a lot of favors? Like there has to be something bringing me there. And then the third question, which is always the toughest one is, is doing this worth taking time away from the other things I'm doing right now? And anytime I ask myself these three questions before taking on a project, like I never regret taking on a project after I answer the right answers on those three questions. But when I don't ask myself the questions, I, I'm like, why did I sign on? Why did I volunteer to do this for no reason at all? And I'm not getting anything out of it. And it's not worth my time and I'm miserable, but now I have to do it because I've committed to it. Um, So I think those questions have really, really helped me when I ask myself the questions. So is this going to bring, bring me closer to where I want to be in five years is number one. What is number two? Number two is what am I getting out of it? What am I getting out of it? And then is this worth me taking away from what I'm doing now? Yes. Is that right? Okay. No, I think that that's helpful to kind of put it in perspective to see if it's really important to you or if it's just an addiction to work. Exactly. And even beyond the addiction to work, sometimes things sound it's flattering to be asked to do something like someone's like, Hey, I thought of you. I thought you'd be a great fit for this. 
And it's like, wow, that project sounds interesting, but it's a lot of time and it doesn't do anything for me. And it's taking, it's going to be taking like eight hours away from the other stuff I'm supposed to do this week. When you lay it out like that, it's easier to not lie to yourself that it's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's important. Actually, I'll probably write those down and look at those myself (laughs) because I definitely have the tendency to like overwork where it's like, okay, you just got to take a break. (laughs) Yes. And like, it's like, I think our brains go, oh, opportunity, but like not all opportunities are made equal. Like some of them are like, some of them are not worth your time. Right. Like some of them is like, oh, well I'll be able to spend a little time with this person, but you're really only going to spend an hour with them. And it's going to take 20 hours for you to finish this stuff. And that like, once you lay it out that way, it's easier to realize like, oh, that like, even though I'm like, oh, that is a perk. The perk doesn't outweigh the cost. Right. Right. So Tiffany, let's end with a tip to encourage women who are in the arena fighting for the life that they want. I think my tip to encourage would be to make, make your problems smaller. Like that sounds silly because problems are big. But like, if you have, like, if you're going through something, nothing lasts forever. Like the situation can be very long and that does not take away from like the pain you're going through and the stress you're going through and all of that. But that's something you're going through right now. And if you're looking at a huge goal ahead of you, like if you have to finish writing a book or something, like don't think of it as finish writing a book. Think of it as I got to do my 20 minutes of writing today, because I think we sometimes even the language we use, like, oh, I've got to finish that book. We're adding all this stress on ourselves or even like, oh, this is never, like my life is going to be hell forever. Like using that, like the language we use is important. Yeah. As writers, we, we know this. <laughs> and like, so important. It may, yes. And it may feel that way. And that is a very legitimate feeling and it's very valid and it's very real. But using that language is causing you unnecessary despair sometimes. Like you're already despairing. Like despair is there. Don't give it any more space than it has to have. (laughs) Like think of it as like, sometimes you just have to get through the day and that's that's it and that's fine. Like, you know your life more than anyone else does, but like try to think of it as just the day. Don't think of it as the universe. Don't think of it as, like, I think women especially, like we we make a mistake and we're like, oh, we are bad people. Right. Like, no, take responsibility for your mistake, apologize, fix what you can and endeavor to be better. Like those are three really tough steps to do. Like it's, it's hard to apologize, right? It's hard to make amends, but doing that little hard thing to keep us from thinking like of like, oh my gosh, catastrophizing that yeah. now we're just evil people. Um, like just, you just have to break the problem into smaller chunks or at least I think identify it in the most specific way possible. And it's not as scary. What we imagine is always scarier than what it is, right? Totally. So powerful. Tiffany, how can we connect with you? Um, so my website is tiffanybab.com. That's T-I-F-F-A-N-Y-B-A-B-B.com. And if you go there and you click, I have a banner at the top of the page, you can download Um, eight ways to engage with art more deeply. And that'll also sign you up for my monthly newsletter where I write an essay about art every month. And that'll also have updates on on my writing. And I'm also on Twitter at Exploding Arrow. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much, Tiffany. You've been a total badass and I've enjoyed hearing your story. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. With that, we'll end our show.
to all the badass women out there staying in the arena, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, own it and get after it. Wasn't Tiffany badass? I really enjoyed hearing her story. Now, for a game changer moment. I really loved what Tiffany said at the beginning of the interview about being badass. She said when she's looking forward, she feels uncertain. But looking back, the five years ago her would have only dreamed about what she's accomplished. You can feel uncertain going forward. Things can be hard. But you can still do them. You can accomplish the hard things. And then look back at yourself and be like, oh my goodness, five years ago, I didn't think this was possible. But just keep pushing yourself. Even if it's just the teeniest, tiniest step, every day, keep pushing yourself to do more. More of what you love, more of what excites you and thrills you. You don't have to push yourself just to push yourself, but push yourself just to do a little bit more than you thought you could do. That's what builds confidence and inner strength. Also, coming on Thursday, I have a sneak peek for you or a new little segment I'm going to start doing or test out, see what you guys think. Um, It's going to be a short recap of the episodes, but then also how you can apply it to your life and how the episodes affect my life or what I think of them. So tune in on Thursday for the sneak peek. It's going to be the first one. And I would love, love, love feedback from you guys. Um, As always, Ordinary to Badass on Instagram. Or if you liked this episode of the podcast, I would be so honored if you'd head on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And then, of course, screenshot it and send it to me at Ordinary to Badass on Instagram so that I can say thank you. I am so grateful to you for listening to this podcast and excited to see where things go. And with that, I'll leave you to your badassery. Now that you've listened to this episode of Ordinary to Badass, we want to hear from you. Go to our website, OrdinaryToBadass.com slash podcast and submit your own experience on how you took your life from ordinary to badass and get the chance to be on a future spotlight episode of the show. That's OrdinaryToBadass.com forward slash podcast. While you're waiting for the next episode of the show, wipe off the sweat, dust off the dirt and get back in the arena.